Perhaps you uh, discern that the uh, words to that hymn uh, reflect a passage uh, from the gospel where, where uh, the sick are brought to Jesus at the end of a, of a Sabbath and he heals them. And we've been looking in the gospel of Matthew at Jesus' miracles of healing and just looked last Lord's Day at a, at a wonderful uh, account of the healing of a, of a young daughter of a Canaanite woman. And today that brings us to Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 29 through 39, where we'll see another of Jesus' uh, episodes of Jesus' miraculous works. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39, and let's hear this as, as God's word to us this day. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Well, get ready for a question, okay? We uh, should notice that Matthew has written this narrative so that in many ways it reflects earlier passages in his gospel. This is a literary technique that, that's very Hebraic in its background, very Jewish. Uh, and I'm sure that that's part of the reason why the, the Spirit used this uh, particular technique here in his writing. We often miss this kind of mirroring effect, but people that were accustomed to hearing more than looking, reading with their eyes. Uh, people who are used to hearing the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures uh, would have picked up on these things uh, a lot more quickly than, than we uh, do, perhaps. So think for yourself. Look at, again at verse 29 there. Think for yourself about that first verse in our text, which describes Jesus going up the mountain, sitting down, and people coming to him. Now, where did we read an almost identical description earlier in the Gospel of Matthew? Anybody remember? Sermon on the Mount. Thank you, Warren. That's exactly it. Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, 
He went up the mountain. It, notice both passages say the mountain, not a mountain. Uh, I think that's purposeful. Up the mountain, where when when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And that's in, in that passage. The focus was on the disciples. Probably there's also an allusion in both these passages because Matthew says the mountain. Probably an allusion to Sinai. Okay, here is the new covenant being brought by Jesus Christ, the anointed one. So there is a new speaking of the law from the mountain. So yes, there's, a, there's very much a parallel between this passage and others that have come before it. And that occasions the question, well, well why the, the repetition? Is Matthew just repeating this for emphasis? Uh, we'll notice this with, the, uh, with what's to follow as well. Is he just emphasizing it here? Well, I think there's a little more going on there than that. And, and to catch what's happening here, I want you to, to notice the differences between this passage and that earlier passage in Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount happens in Galilee, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, most likely, or perhaps the north. And that's a mostly Jewish audience. Now, there are some Gentiles that live in Galilee, but it's still a heavily Jewish area of the country. And so it would have been mostly a, a Jewish audience that is benefiting from Jesus' teaching there. But remember, in the last episode that we looked at, back in verses 21 through 28, Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon. He's in that region, which is a Gentile region to the north, uh, to the north, for your, from your perspective, to the north and west of Galilee. And Mark helps us out here because in his parallel account of this uh, narrative, he tells us that Jesus proceeds through that Gentile area, and then comes down on the east side of the Sea of Galilee to a region called the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. And the important fact to note there is that that is a mostly Gentile region, heavily Gentile, maybe some Jews there, but not that many. And so, Jesus is ministering in this passage largely to Gentiles rather than Jews. You see how that ties in with the theme of the, of the verses previous to that, where he's ministering to a Canaanite woman. Okay, one who descended from a people under God's curse. And yet he is ministering to her. And here he is ministering to Gentiles outside the covenant people of Israel. I think there's, there's an important message there that Jesus is already foreshadowing the spreading of the gospel around the world. Now we know he, he told that Canaanite woman in that previous episode, he said, I've come to seek out the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is a Jew sent to Jews. But all along, God has that agenda of the gospel expanding to include Gentiles. Gentiles like most of us, probably. 
So already we see a foreshadowing of that, and I think that's an important reason why Matthew is putting in these episodes at this point. They're very similar to what's happened before, but they have that key difference. We'll look at verse 30 then. We have a summary description of crowds bringing to Jesus people who are afflicted with various ills, and he heals all of them. This is a no-brainer question. Have we seen Jesus doing this before in the gospel? (laughs) Of course we have. In fact, even before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25 tell us he went throughout all Galilee, again a Jewish area, largely, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. We saw just in the previous chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So... Matthew is telling us right up front here, Jesus' ministry will eventually reach beyond Jews to Gentiles as well. And notice before we leave uh, verse 30 as well, just the very simple statement, he healed them. No fanfare here, no showmanship He doesn't call a crowd together to watch or anything like that. Uh, People are simply made healthy in body and mind by his touch and by his word. Well, seemingly to emphasize the completeness of that healing, look at verse 31. This sort of of pulls us into the text to see things from the viewpoint of the crowd there. And so we're told the crowd wondered. That's a word for marveled. They're astonished, as indeed you would be, right? If you saw someone who was mute now speaking, if you saw the crippled made healthy, the lame walking, blind seeing, certainly you'd marvel at that. But, but notice, uh, notice what they do beyond that. They glorify the God of Israel. That, too, may be an indication that this is a Gentile crowd, because that would not be the normal way a Jew would address God. But before leaving that verse, we've seen this before, too. And I want to point to this because it's important for us to remember why Jesus does these miracles. Back in Matthew chapter 11, you remember John was languishing in prison, John the baptizer, and, and he's, he's probably aware that he's not going to get out of that prison, that dungeon alive. Uh, he, in fact, will be executed before long, and he sends messengers, you remember, to, to Jesus. It's recorded in the first part of uh, Matthew 11. Sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one? Now, he, he's the one that baptized Jesus, so he, he's heard God's own stamp of approval. He's heard the voice of the Father 
affirming Jesus, but languishing in prison, is, is, his faith seems to begin to waver. And so he says, are you the one by messenger to Jesus? And, and here's Jesus' answer to them. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the supernatural signs that I am doing point to my identity as the anointed one, as the Messiah. You got that? They're the proof. They're the outward manifestation of who he is, that he is God in the flesh because he is doing things that only God could do, right? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, we read, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, or Yahweh, to use the Hebrew name for God there? Psalm 146 identifies God as the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. He is the one who gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. Isaiah 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So the proof of who Jesus is is in these supernatural signs that he gives. And we're not surprised then that these good works bring glory to God. Remember he said in the Sermon on the Mount that that's the purpose of your doing good works as his people. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not that they would praise you, but they, they would give glory to God. And, and it's no coincidence then that we see these people doing exactly that, don't they? They give glory to the God of Israel. And this is all the more astounding to us that these Gentiles would do this because remember... We read earlier that even the people in his hometown refused to believe him and rejected him. And in fact, we were told back in chapter 13, he did not do many mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief. So with that healing then done, and I think that we can infer because he sat down that he is teaching as well. I think these three days are filled not just with healing but with teaching as well. The stage is set by Jesus himself in verse 32 for another miraculous feeding of thousands but this time for Gentiles. So that previous feeding of thousands that we read about was for Jews. This is for Gentiles it is in a way similar to what he did then. He he involves the disciples. And that, that perhaps raises a question for us as we look at verse 33. Why, why are they doubting? Uh, it would seem that if they've seen so many of Jesus' miracles before, they, they, would, they would not have doubted at this point. 
Well, we don't know exactly why, exactly the reason we could give. Could, could it be that, well, this is a Gentile crowd, and they knew he, he fed Jews, and they knew that sort of was reminiscent of God feeding the Jews in the wilderness after they'd been delivered from Egypt before they came to Israel? So, so maybe they thought, well, miraculous feeding is good for Jews, but do Gentiles really deserve it? Maybe that's going on. Maybe they recall the people after that first miracle of Jesus providing food, clamoring Jesus to do that on a daily basis. And he told people, don't seek for bread that perishes. Instead, seek for the bread that leads to eternal life, namely, through faith in me. We don't know. Maybe, maybe they just are forgetful like we are. Matthew Henry wrote on this passage, Forgetting former experiences leaves us under present doubts. Hasn't that sometimes happened to you? You forgot about how the Lord provided in the past. You began to doubt his provision in the present. Calvin says in his comment on this passage, There is not a day on which a similar indifference does not steal upon us. We ought all to be the more careful not to allow our minds to be drawn away from the contemplation of divine benefits that the experience of the past may lead us to expect for the future the same assistance which God has already on one or more occasions bestowed on us. Well, whatever the reason for their doubt, it didn't hamper Jesus at all. His miraculous provision of food is in many ways similar to that that we read previously. Same result, all are satisfied, nobody goes away hungry, everybody's eaten all they can, and there's leftovers left. Again, wonderful foreshadowing of God's grace to be extended to the Gentiles in the gospel. What do you think is the theme of this passage? What is the main thought you should seize on in these verses and grasp with your mind? I want you to go home with this. I want you you to see this main theme. What's the link between the supernatural healings and the supernatural feeding? I'm sort of pointing you to that middle part of the passage. What does Jesus himself say that provides us with a personal insight into his being? We don't read that often in scripture. I think this is the only place where Jesus says this. It's said of him, but I think this is the only place where he says this, what does Jesus reveal to his disciples about himself here? Compassion. Compassion. We might say that the compassion of Jesus is as much a sign of his identity as the anointed one as his supernatural acts are because God is a God who loves his people. He is a compassionate God. 
And that's very important because we have needs a lot deeper than for food and physical health, don't we? Jesus healed and fed thousands of people. The hunger of those he fed was completely satisfied. The afflictions of those he healed were completely cured. But you need to remember every one of those people got hungry again. And every one of those people got sick and died. It's wonderful when God answers our prayers for healing today. And we rejoice when he restores loved ones to health. But we realize that that restoration is only temporary. It's only for time. These earthly healings, either the ones that we experience or the supernatural ones done by Jesus here, are not ends in themselves. Jesus did not come with the primary purpose of giving people physical well-being. Healings of mind and body were, of course, marvelous expressions of God's grace. And as I said before, they're clear and certain signs of his identity as the Son of God. But these supernatural works of earthly healing point beyond themselves to his supernatural work of eternal healing. Jesus pointed to this uh, fact, the primacy of spiritual needs over physical needs when a paralyzed man was brought to him earlier in the gospel. You remember that? Some friends of this guy bring him to Jesus. I mean, what could be what could be a more hopeless situation than to be totally paralyzed, be completely dependent upon others? What greater need could a person have? He's not just crippled, he's paralyzed. He's not just sick, he's immovable. And yet, Jesus pointed to a greater need that that man had. Some of you are probably anticipating me here because he sees this paralyzed man brought in before him and he says, Son, not get up and walk, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He spoke to that man's deepest need. He would in just a moment restore him to physical health. He would not be paralyzed anymore. But far infinitely of more importance is that person's eternal life, his eternal destiny. Jesus was saying, you want to know what's important in life? It's not having a body in great shape. It's at receiving forgiveness for your sins. Listen to what he said, or what's said about him in, in Matthew chapter 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. There's that same word, and I, and I should mention, by the way, that this word compassion is a very intense word. Literally, it means he felt it in his gut. It wasn't just a passing affection. His, his insides churned. 
His stomach tightened in his concern. He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He sees that crowd, and he sees their deepest need is spiritual. They need a heavenly shepherd. Their lives are distracted. Their lives are a mess. They need, they need the gospel. And so Jesus tells his disciples, pray for people to send the gospel to these, these poor, harassed people. The gospel of forgiveness for those who repent, and inclusion in the kingdom of God for those who submit to him as sovereign is most important. That's why his message was, was summarized. You remember what we were told earlier in the gospel. His message was summarized, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his focus. Now that's made possible, of course, only by God's grace and mercy. And here again, Jesus is reflecting the character of God. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses wants God's revelation of himself. He wants to... He wants to have a greater revelation of who God really is. He he says, I I want you to show me your ways. He means they're your way of life. I want you to show me what kind of a God you are. He says later on, I want you to, to, to show me your glory. And so God says he will. He says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will... Proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. You can't see me in my glorious essence. And so we have that beautiful picture where where the Lord reveals himself to Moses primarily with words. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood before him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God reveals himself to Moses as a God of grace and mercy. He makes promises to his covenant people that extend for a thousand generations. So Jesus is giving us a glimpse here the compassion of God, the love of God, in physical healing and physical feeling, he is telling us there is a spiritual healing, a spiritual feeding available. What do you do to get that? 
What's your response to God's grace and mercy extended to you in Christ? What is Jesus looking for? Well, we find it in Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And what are you doing when you come to the Lord in repentance? That you're, you're simply asking him to be who he says he is, to keep the promises that he himself has made before you were ever created. You're simply saying, Lord, I confess my identity as a sinner and I count on your identity as a Savior. Paul describes this as in Ephesians chapter 2, writing to Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were just like everybody else. You were spiritually dead. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus holds out to his people grace. And so because he is he has come in grace to us, the writer of Hebrews tell us tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that uh, we are needy people just like the people in this passage and that our true needs, our real needs, our deepest needs are spiritual. We, we are so grateful for the gospel that tells us that those needs are met in Jesus Christ. That you've made atonement for our sins, you've taken the full penalty for our sins and you have clothed us in your righteousness. Help us to know that anew. This day, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, I pray that you would, you would feed our souls spiritually uh, with these truths and enable us to walk in strength and health in a spiritual sense to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.